Hello, This Blew Up listeners. If you're enjoying our show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative podcasts, like Just Like Us, a deep dive into the era of tabloids. Think TMZ and Paparazzi, Benefer and Brangelina. Or Gamblers, a show about people who make money off the weirdest stuff. Like, did you know you can gamble on chess? We like making shows for you here at The Ringer. And we like you. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I'm not exactly sure when so many people who are famous for being famous took over my phone. But ever since they have, I've come up with an obsessive ritual. I get comfy on my couch and pull out my phone for a little social media as a treat. And like clockwork, I land on an influencer's profile. Way up at the top of their page, there are all these snapshots of them flexing, both literally and figuratively. They're exploring the streets of Paris, lounging on the beach in Mexico, or hanging out in a hotel that you can just tell costs like $1,000 a night. It goes without saying that they look good. Cute outfit, elaborate nails, toned and made up. Living their best life, no doubt. But to be perfectly honest with you, I don't care about these posts. I'm always scrolling down, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a long way, to what I think of as their in-between time. And they weren't quite a civilian like me, but they weren't really a celebrity either. And when I hover on that moment in their lives, a question rattles around in my brain. Is it as simple as it looks? Like, did this person will a whole glamorous life into existence with nothing but an iPhone? What I've learned is that almost every glow up requires a little bit of chance. A post catches in the algorithm, a comment, a connection, a message, a meeting, suddenly a tornado of attention. The thread between real life and the internet thins, and a whole new world of possibilities bursts open. Some good, some bad. At least, that's how it happened for Leslie Golden. I'm Leslie Golden uh, from Texarkana, Texas. I'm an influencer. Leslie grew up in a town of 40,000 people. Back then, people called her Hannibal or Hannah, which was her middle name. She was a petite kid with blue eyes and blonde hair who posed for photo shoots, competed in pageants, and was a flyer in cheerleading stunts. Her family was big and unconventional. 
They bonded over crawfish boils and got tattoos on holidays and birthdays. After she graduated high school, she went to junior college and kept cheerleading. When things didn't work out in those departments, she got a job pole dancing at a strip club in San Antonio. She went through some rough patches. At one point in her rocky relationship history, she says she was physically and mentally abused. All of this left her with an empty bank account and terrible credit. Whenever she could, she'd arrange photo shoots as a way of building up her Instagram presence. She had a talent for being in front of the camera. But there was still a very large gap between booking the occasional unpaid gig and launching a full-blown career on the internet. She needed an opportunity, some kind of breakthrough. Otherwise, she'd be spinning her wheels in Texas forever. And that moment came in 2018, when she connected with a guy named Dan Bilzerian, unofficially known as the king of Instagram. On Larry King Now, social media titan, Dan Bilzerian. Life is more about setup. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to like set it up so that I could get laid without like having a bunch of conversations and dates and whatnot. So when I have these pool parties, I'd have like 30 of my friends and then like two to 300 girls. Do you ever think, Dan, to yourself that you're using them? Um, not really because both parties are benefiting. You make your money from poker. Dan is the Hugh Hefner of the social media set, a muscly trust fund kid and poker fanatic who has gained over 32 million followers on Instagram by posting pics of himself with hot women on private planes and yachts. He'd monetize those big parties he mentioned to Larry King under a brand he called Ignite. Leslie's friends, who were presumably fans, said, let us message him for you. It was just a big joke. And like pretty much everything else in her life, she ended up publicly discussing this whole backstory on a podcast called Sus, Share Your Scare in spring of 2021. I did not message him first. It was from my account, but it was my guy friends that were in the military in Korea messaging him, pretending what? to be me. They were like, say like, hey, daddy. And so I was like sending him his own pictures. And I was like, mm, daddy. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think he would actually answer me back. And then he did. And I was like, I don't know what to do. He was like, come to my party this Friday. And I was like, okay. So at the time I was working- Not everyone would immediately hop on a flight at the request of a stranger they met on Instagram. But Leslie is not like most people. She's an unabashed risk taker with a fierce country grit. She likes shooting guns and off-roading. She's sex positive and won't hesitate to tell you all about her love life. Just an all-around exhibitionist with Aries energy. And given that she was still dancing for a living at the time, she didn't have much to lose from skipping town for a weekend. I mean, come on, this man had a blue check mark. So Leslie borrowed some money from a friend for a last-minute flight to Los Angeles. She showed up that Friday at the 30,000-square-foot mega-mansion in Bel Air that Dan Bilzerian was renting. It was one of those ultra-modern slabs of property in the hills, all right angles and recessed light fixtures. There was a 70-foot infinity pool, a theater, a bowling alley, a rooftop gym, glass chandeliers, marble countertops, balconies galore, room upon massive room. There must have been something like 500 people there, shoulder to shoulder, mostly women. Marshmallow, the guy who wears a big bucket on his head, that guy, he was DJing. Leslie could barely believe her luck. You can hear her lighting up as she talked about it on that Sus podcast. 
I'm there with Justin Bieber, Chris Brown, like every famous person in LA was like there minus the Kardashians. And it was absolutely insane. My mind was blown. I didn't know what to do. I was like, I'll just drop my top. Like I said, a true exhibitionist. I'm like there by myself, they're recording things. Her other party tricks included handstands in the pool. It was just the go-to. I mean, I worked in a topless strip club for like three years before this. Handstands in the pool while twerking. So that's, I was like, okay, this is all I know what to do. Anyway, the party got wild. At one point, someone threw vodka in her eyes, which then led to her getting in a fight. And that fighting spirit, let's just say it caught Dan's attention. He took a liking to her, and since he'd only known her from her Instagram handle, Leslie Hannibal, he started introducing her to other people at the party as Leslie. She didn't want to correct him to tell him everyone back home called her something else. She simply accepted her new name. She'd arrived at the party as Hannah, but she'd be leaving as Leslie, all part of her social media makeover. She and Dan hit it off. The way she put it on that podcast, it was almost like this whole thing was inevitable. I was supposed to leave the next morning. He kept me there the whole weekend. Wow. And I was like, okay. When Leslie finally made it back home to Texas, she'd stepped off the plane to discover that Dan's people had captured footage of her partying and put it on Instagram as a post-event recap for Ignite. Hearing her explain it, you can just tell how out of left field it was. I get off the plane and Austin had no idea that they already like made this video and posted it and tagged me. And then the comment section was blowing up yeah. about me. And then that's whenever I blew up. The attention directed thousands of people to her Instagram profile. And suddenly, a small slice of Dan Bilzerian's fans, people like her military buddies, were becoming her fans. We'll get back to Leslie and everything that came after. But I want to pause for a second and say this is the moment that fascinates me. When escape velocity takes over and you're propelled upward by the algorithm and all the things that shaped your life thus far, your hometown, your family, your education, peel away to reveal a universe of possibility. The glow up. But once you're launched into this new atmosphere, things can spiral. And let me tell you now, they really spiraled for Leslie. She joined some content houses, got to live in a Beverly Hills mansion, and gained tons of new followers at the height of the pandemic's social media frenzy. She was also pushed to the brink, abruptly ousted, and then hit with an expensive lawsuit when she tried to speak about what had happened to her. The experience was amazing at first, but eventually, it was just agonizing. And that's what this podcast is all about. The whirlwind experience of blowing up on the internet and then flipping that clout into, well, a whole new life. Maybe even a lucrative one. About buying into a fantasy and the long quest it takes to try and live it out. A journey that, at times, is a little like ordering a cool shirt you saw on TikTok and putting it on to realize the fabric is itchy and paper thin. Over the next six episodes, I'm going to examine the secret world of influencers. Influencers who inhabit the peaks and valleys of LA. Starting with what you see every day on your social media feeds. The extravagant lifestyles of beautiful, talented young people. How they came to be. And the emotional toll that comes with exposing yourself on the internet 24-7 for a living. More crucially, I'll tell you about what happens beyond the view of the camera. In the course of reporting this podcast, I've spoken with over 30 creators, parents, and staffers in the scene, and reviewed a trove of documents and text message conversations. 
From that, I've learned about the opportunists who set up shop to profit off of these creators and how a widely unregulated industry allows them to corral dozens of young people from all over the country into mansions where they live and film under scant supervision. How these environments are cutthroat, transactional, and often exploitative. And how, together, both the profiteers and the creators make up a much larger teen dream machine that's constantly pushing for more. More content, more followers, and more engagement. All to derive the maximum value from the young and social media famous, with little concern for their well-being. When attention is the ultimate currency, what are you selling people? And what can you build if you collect enough of it? There are now an estimated 50 million creators or influencers or whatever you want to call them in the world. These social media stars are often young, sometimes even in their preteens. And all combined, they've claimed a big enough stake in our attention economy to ink deals with major advertisers, high-end labels, and even Hollywood studios. This year, brands are expected to spend $15 billion on influencer marketing. And that influx of cash, coupled with the enormous power of creators' platforms, has moved them from the fringes of celebrity culture to its highest echelon. Somewhere along the way, a whole generation of people saw this industry forming and thought they could be famous too. By playing dress up on Instagram instead of praying they'd be discovered at the mall. By posting memes on Twitter instead of touring the comedy clubs. By lip syncing to top 40 hits on TikTok instead of auditioning for American Idol. This is a show about the pursuit of a new kind of fame, what people are willing to do for it, and how getting there, if you get there at all, might not always be as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak, and you're listening to This Blew Up. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When was the first time that you fantasized about being famous? For me, it was when I started watching Total Request Live. Let me set the scene for you here. It's 1999, a weekday afternoon, in MTV's Skyscraper studio smack dab in the middle of Times Square. TRL host Carson Daly is there with a mic. He's dressed like he went to Hot Topic and asked for the lukewarm white guy special. Bowling shirt, black nail polish, baggy jeans, fans. If you're of a certain age, you know the outfit. He's counting down the 10 most requested music videos of the day, decided by fans who've called in. Behind him are head-to-toe windows that look out on an island of teens who are screaming their faces off. Is live today, and what an amazing sight it is here at our Times Square studio. I'm Carson Daly. Welcome to the show. Unbelievable how many people have come out. Outside is incredible. We've got an amazing studio audience here. There are so many of them, and they're so amped up on adrenaline and lust that sometimes they blow past a barrier rush the building and bring Times Square traffic to a halt. It doesn't matter if it's the Backstreet Boys or Jay-Z or Britney. The crowd is ravenous, on the verge of chaos, in the center of the universe. 
Okay, then there's me. I'm a sixth grader teetering on the edge of puberty in the Silicon Valley suburbs. I rush home from school in my Tommy Hilfiger overalls and Delia's baby tee, grab a Capri Sun, plop down on the couch, and turn on MTV to this madness. I swoon over Carson. I swoon over the dance moves. I swoon over literally everything because there is no such thing as YouTube, and this is the only place I'm guaranteed to find the gyrating pelvis of a Backstreet Boy at 3.30 p.m. on a weekday. It's not really about the videos. I have the videos memorized. Sitting on my couch, I feel united with this mob of teens in the street. They're my representatives on the ground. And together, we worship at the altar of pop music. So, yeah. That was around the time that the gap between ordinary people and famous people shrunk a little in my mind. A little voice in my head whispering, hey, that could be me. Fawning over celebrities is an American tradition. But in the late 90s and early aughts, as I was coming of age, the entertainment world entered a new level of obsession, spectacle, and consumerism that turned the concept of fame into a product itself. Boy bands like NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys were filling up the pages of Tiger Bee and stadiums across the world. Britney and Christina were on their way to dominating the Billboard Hot 100 chart and becoming our de facto saleswomen, slinging Skechers, Pepsi, and a tanning salon sex appeal to the masses. As an antidote to the sheer commercial volume of it all, pop culture was also becoming more and more self-referential. Like, the TV show Hannah Montana told the story of a normal middle schooler who lived a secret double life as a teen idol made all the more meta by the fact that the lead was played by Miley Cyrus, an up-and-coming teen idol. Through this media blitz, my generation learned about the industry of fame, about public image, rabid fans, and ruthless paparazzi, about money-hungry entertainment executives, crooked agents, and self-interested managers. And crucially, it centered our attention on the experience of becoming a celebrity, away from the traditional expectation that being famous required talent. Being known for being known was enough, and I say that with all due respect to Miss Miley Cyrus. This shift in thinking opened a new vortex, where young nobodies could film themselves getting cellulite treatment to pay for their Calabasas mortgages. Welcome to my family. I'm Kim Kardashian. The princess is in the building. Yes, I'm talking about reality TV. As the genre rose in popularity through the aughts, it was the go-to accelerant for fame, the way you vaulted from nobody to somebody. Suffice to say, I was the consumer test case for a theory the entertainment industry was formulating. That anyone could be interesting. Anyone could be famous. All they needed was a bode symbol or two. As the genre evolved, diehards like me also became enamored with the production of it all the covert maneuvering done on shows like The Bachelor to propel storylines or piss off contestants. In turn, those shows gave us what we wanted, a peek behind the curtain every now and then, even if it was a highly choreographed one. We turn the corner, I see Chase, my ex-boyfriend. Nothing could be worse. I'm freaking out right now, freaking out. Then, faster than you could Google Kris Jenner, the whole thing spilled over into social media. Tech platforms like Instagram, YouTube, and Vine became hubs for entertainers slash models slash DJs slash maple latte enthusiasts. All those titles went under one simple umbrella term. Influencer. The profession began as the butt of many jokes as vloggers, models, and reality TV contestants mixed SpawnCon, that is, sponsored content, 
in with regular con, sometimes just an exchange for free products. But eventually, legit advertisers wanted in on the action and began forking over tons of cash for promos. Influencers made a living piecing together a salary from YouTube ads, merchandise sales, and posting about products on their feed. They eventually built their own brands. The more sizable and engaged their followings, the larger the paycheck. Whether they kept your attention depended on the amount of time they spent doing it. The key to being a successful influencer was about being accessible at virtually all times on virtually all platforms. Fans were no longer separated from their idols by Times Square traffic, static television screens, or even the conventions of school hours. Celebrities were in people's phones and feeds from morning till evening, asking them to sound off in the comments. And then, in the summer of 2018, came TikTok. 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 TikTok stars. TikTok challenge. TikTok has taken the world by storm in just three years. TikTok reports it has 500 million active users a month, making it one of the most used social media apps in the world. TikTok took the best parts of its predecessors, Instagram, Vine, Snapchat, to name a few, and packed them all into one super addictive feed of 15-second videos. For creators, adding music was easy and legal. Editing was intuitive. And the app's algorithm made it so you could start swiping, look up, and realize three hours had passed. The result was more posts going viral and more people going viral. And the more people that go viral together, the better chances that everyone has at fame. That's actually the basic logic of a phenomenon known as collab houses or content houses. Dwellings where all the winners of the algorithm gather, live, and film content together, maximizing their collective appeal. This isn't a new idea. Versions of content houses have existed for decades, and their formula is simple. You put a bunch of nice-looking young people who can sing and dance together in a room, and then use their relationships as a marketing vehicle for whatever form of entertainment or merchandise you want. But what's shifted from decade to decade is the medium through which they reach the public, and also probably the number of lime green Range Rovers they own. In the 1950s, these teens were beamed to us via a neat new gadget called the television, and Disney ruled the scene. That, by the way, was a clip from the original Mickey Mouse Club program that ran weekday evenings. The Mickey Mouse Club would continue churning out child stars over the years, including Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and Justin Timberlake. Pop music followed, in the form of boy bands and girl groups like Destiny's Child, who gave us personalities to worship and choreographed hits to dance around to, like Bootylicious. Today, social media dominates our free time, especially the free time of a hyper-connected younger generation. TikTok was the most downloaded app in the world last year and the most visited website. And an estimated 25% of its massive user base is between ages 10 and 19. This means TikTok is the best way for new performers to reach their young fans. No matter what era we're talking about, there's power in numbers. A stage full of musketeers is more visually appealing than one lonely 12-year-old tap dancing. And on TikTok, the algorithm will, more often than not, boost multiple people hitting the woe in a mansion over one lonely user in their bedroom. If TikTok is a trampoline to fame, collabs are like that thing where you and a friend coordinate your trampoline jumps to power boost one another way up high into the sky. 
One influencer with a million followers plus another influencer with a million followers means a lot more eyeballs for everyone. So yes, a content house provides shelter, a compelling stage, and theoretically a business model. More on that later. But more than anything, it's a hype machine. It concentrates fame like a nuclear reactor concentrates energy. And anyone who gets close enough comes away with a little glow of their own. Hey y'all, Marce Martin here with a little Tampax story. One time I went on vacation in the Bahamas with some friends, and of course I got my period. I didn't want anything to stop me from living my best life on my trip. So I was like, why not be brave and try Tampax? Before that, I really just thought tampons were for adults, and I definitely thought they'd be uncomfortable. Guess what, y'all? They really aren't. It might take a few tries, but once it's in right, you shouldn't feel it, which is great. For a better way to period, just add Tampax. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, back to Leslie after that big Ignite party in 2018. As she collected followers, she was immediately pulled into orbit around Dan Bilzerian, dating him and flying out to L.A. to work as an event model for his parties. It was unlike anything she'd ever experienced before. And listening to her talk about it on that Sus podcast, she sounded a little unprepared. I didn't know what to think of it. I didn't come from that. I didn't come from money. I come from a very big family. Um, my parents were divorced, remarried. We did foster care, adopted, so like a lot of kids. L.A. was so full of opportunity. Leslie told me that she started going back and forth. I was flying in a lot. I was in town like probably every other weekend in California. And at one point I was just like, I am wasting so much money on plane tickets. I should just make the move because I would grow more whenever I was in town versus being in Texas. Like I would come here, I would gain like 10,000 followers in a weekend and then I would go home and it would be so slow. And so, yeah, I just decided to finally make the move. She landed in town in March 2019 and threw herself into the influencer circuit. Yes, that is a thing. In Leslie's case, it meant traveling with Dan and a bunch of other women as he drove around in Humvees, handled dangerous animals, and sailed to tropical islands. She'd get glammed up and party at his events. This was the moment the shift from civilian to influencer began on her Instagram feed. Her videos of her dancing at San Antonio clubs were replaced by bikini shots from the beaches of Thailand. You could tell from the way she talked about it on that Sus podcast that it was thrilling and overwhelming all at once. I went from stripper and like making my own rules to uh-huh. being like around these like, I didn't know that I was like hot. Like I like felt like it. Like, yeah, I'm kind of hot. But these girls I was being around were all from L.A. They mm-hmm. all had like their nails done all the time. No tattoos. They all had hair extensions and like changed their outfit like eight times a day while we're there. Really? And like just all these expensive bags and shoes. And I had never been around anything like that. So it was it was just like a really hard lifestyle to keep up with, both like physically and mentally. It was like a full time job for me. You might scoff at Leslie referring to this kind of stuff as work, which is fair. She wasn't chiseling away in a coal mine or even working for tips in a San Antonio strip club. 
She was getting dressed up, partying, and traveling. We should all be so lucky. But Leslie didn't view this as a vacation. This was her job. More than that, it was her shot at fame, a foothold into a cutthroat industry. Leslie was 22, she didn't come from much, and needed to find a way out of her podunk town. A social media presence was a lifeboat. Through determination and luck, she'd broken into that business. Now, she was discovering a whole new set of impossible standards to be measured against, and meeting the moneyed industry types who were setting them. Toward the end of 2019, Leslie began looking for new opportunities. She had grown her Instagram followers from about 6,000 to more than 300,000. With this baseline audience, she decided to leave Ignite and walk away from her relationship with Dan to try her hand at influencing outside of its orbit. So I've never been one for like a nine to five, way too ADHD for that. (laughs) I was waitressing for a long time. I got fired multiple times waitressing. I'm just not good at being, I guess, um, attentive at work. And so I guess the appeal for working online is can make my own hours. I'm a very creative person. So it's kind of, it's just right up my alley. I never really thought that it would be an opportunity for me because I'd seen influencers and stuff online. Her vibe was different from a lot of her peers. Her body was covered in tattoos from all those family bonding events. And soon she would dye her blonde hair popsicle blue. But if there was ever a place that might accept her for who she was, it was the internet. Anything was possible on the internet. I should say that by this point, being an influencer was a legit job. The goalposts were shifting all the time, but someone with over 50,000 followers could make a few hundred dollars per post. Once you cracked a million, there were even more zeros at the end of that paycheck. Leslie thought that this job could be a way forward, at least a better one than going back to her old life in San Antonio. So she looked for ways to get more exposure and ended up at a reality TV casting call. The show, it was called Get Real. I don't think it ever really aired, but the concept was just bringing in a bunch of random influencers, putting them on a couch and getting them just to talk about random things. While she was at this audition, she met the guy running it, Amir Ben-Yohanan. He was an Israeli businessman who'd built a real estate company in New Jersey that managed over $300 million in multifamily properties and had recently moved out to Los Angeles. Through his four kids, he'd learned about collab houses and decided he wanted to get in on the action. He was pretty green in the influencer world, but then again, so was Leslie. And it was clear he had a lot of money to spend and plenty of ambition to go with it. He really wanted things to move quickly. He was very like, let's do this, let's do that. Like very go-getter attitude. Was really interested in working in the entertainment industry, really on board with like getting these houses. Another guy, a videographer named Kevin Zenny, also got pulled into Amir's operation around this time. Kevin was a college dropout in his early 20s who grew up watching YouTube and had always wanted to work with influencers. He'd moved out to the West Coast, slept in his car for a while, worked on weed farms, and finally ended up in LA, keen to play a part in making the kind of content he'd spent so many years consuming. So when he got a tip about a gig with this mysterious real estate guy in Beverly Hills, he took that meeting. I didn't know what I was there for. I just knew for a fact that he was doing real estate. So at at that point in my mind, I thought like, oh, this guy just wants something like real estate videos or something like that. That guy just so happened to be a mirror. He was just like, I'm in real estate. It's my main income, but like I want to like 
put money into like a, a content house and you want to be a part of that and i was just like yeah no for sure you know and then he was just like we should start a content house and then right away like within a week two weeks he already got like a house it's what kevin needed a shot at being part of the influencer world and amir was giving it to him that's exactly what i wanted to do at that time so felt like for sure i was accomplishing my dream at some sense the vision was flexible and seemed to rely solely on generating as much attention as possible which sounded like a pretty good way to waste a ton of money. But remember, attention is currency in this economy. So details aside, Amir's pitch was compelling for both a young videographer like Kevin and a fledgling influencer like Leslie. Kevin would get some hands-on experience filming and editing and a meager weekly Venmo payment. Leslie would manage the day-to-day posting schedule and get some good exposure in the meantime. Both of them would receive an allowance for food and get to live in a nice West Hollywood apartment, rent-free. They named it Click House. He wanted to be an all-inclusive house, which I found that very appealing because of like my background being pretty rough. I used to be a dancer. I used to work with Ignite. I was all about like wanting to make this equal house and just kind of show people's personalities. The pitch was just that he wanted to create a house. He wanted to give me full control of it. I bring my friends in. We just record our daily lives. We film. It was supposed to be very open, very like as long as we just get like three hours of filming done a day, you get your lives, we'll support your businesses, we'll help you grow your businesses, things like that. ClickHouse was following the basic model of a modern day content house. New talent is recruited to live rent-free under the same roof and ideally given access to video equipment and production staff to help with their output and brand deals. In exchange for these resources, a creator agrees to produce photos and videos for the house accounts. These posts, known as deliverables, are a backbone of content house businesses. Creators also might pay a percentage of whatever money they make from brand deals to the founder of the house, in this case, Amir. But more on that later. The ClickHouse crew hit the ground running, crashing the party circuit, attending merch pop-ups, and hosting collaborations at their pad. Their house was perfectly situated above a Gen Z hotspot at the time, a chop house called Saddle Ranch. And it soon became its own kind of recruitment vehicle drawing kids in the creator scene like moths to a ring light. One of those kids was Chase Zwerneman. He was 19 and had recently moved to LA to break into the entertainment world by promoting young TikTokers. He recalls ending up at ClickHouse one night by chance. He left with a new tattoo and a job opportunity. So we ended up going to this ClickHouse and it was like six o'clock in the afternoon and we were there until like two in the morning that day, um, just hanging out and Everyone got tattoos and like, it, it was wild. Like we were, it was wild. Um, did you get a tattoo? I did. Yes. I, what, what was it of? Oh my gosh. What does that say? Music. So words fell, music speaks. Okay. Um, and then this little line right there, it, I took a voice memo and it, it's my mom saying, I love you. Um, so I put that in there. And then the arrow, my sister has the same arrow and her says, follow your arrow. Wow. Um, so I took a conglomerate of everything and, you know, put it together. Because okay. this is my first tattoo. So I was like, I'm going to be very specific of what I do. Um, but yeah, so anyway, we're, we're at the ClickHouse and um, they were like, hey, Amir's going to come by and you should talk to him. And I was like, okay, sure. You know, why not? And he came to the house that evening. I sat down and talked with him for a little bit. Chase says Amir checked out the online profile of the influencer he was working with at the time and pretty much hired him on the spot. 
He was like, this kid is talented. He was like, you guys should come and join this with us. And then, you know, we'll go from there. In the many conversations I've had with people who worked for Amir, I heard similar versions of the same first encounter. No matter whether it was a photographer, a budding manager, or a creator, Amir would make them feel like a rising star, promise them the resources and freedom they needed to reach new heights, and then hustle to fold them into his organization within the span of a few days. Leslie, Kevin, and Chase were some of the first to experience it. And in joining forces with Amir, they seemed to me like four figures perfectly suited for a nebulous business venture like this. Leslie was an influencer, building a life from nothing. Kevin was a wandering weed farmer, hungry to be a part of something. Chase was an inexperienced talent manager, looking for connections. And presiding over it all was Amir, a pushy entrepreneur peddling dreams. But even in those early days, there was a moment that gave Leslie pause. The first time I was made to feel uncomfortable by Amir was during my first meeting, meeting the camera crew. It was before we even moved into ClickHouse. They were basically meeting me as their boss. I was the boss of that house. That was my house. And I was not only a creator, but I was house manager. And at one point he told all the boys to sit down because we're all kind of up and chatting and we're all kind of like looking at each other like, what? He's like, I have a question. He's like, I want all of you to go around the room and rate Leslie on a scale of one to 10 on how sexy you think that she is. And we all immediately got really uncomfortable. It was my first time meeting all these boys. And I looked at them. I was like, don't answer that. I had to stop because I've worked in strip clubs for four years and nobody's ever done that to me. I felt so uncomfortable. I felt put on the spot. I had to sit there and tell them in front of him. I was like, you were here to do a job. You were not here to hook up with my girls. I'm not going to fly out my friends and have them move in here from across the country just to be made to feel like a target and like they're on a fucking buffet line. That was the weirdest thing. And I almost stopped working with him. She left the house that day upset, but ended up sticking with the project. It was simply too good of an opportunity to pass up. And she was learning that being an influencer wasn't all sunshine, diet lollipop sponsorships and rainbows anyway. That February, she and a few friends moved in and did what they do best. They made content. What's up, friends? Welcome to my very first vlog at my new house. Super exciting. Use that to share with Which, you know, was mostly about how glamorous and positive their lives were. What I'm doing. I'm going to start with giving you guys a house tour because this house is insane. We have a content house. We're all creators and we're just trying to be here and make content for you guys and grow as people and uplift each other. So I'm going to take you guys on a tour. The original Click House was very easygoing. I would say, like, it had really good energy. We had people over all the time. Like people were growing like crazy. It was really fun. It's always fun in the beginning when it's just about a dream and an iPhone. But whenever the algorithm picks someone as a winner and they cross over to that new tier of somebodies, the stakes get higher. Their life becomes an asset, one that people want to own and control. Every creator I interviewed for this podcast talked to me about that initial rush, how the early days of internet fame are intoxicating and hopeful. They saw a chance to control their own destiny through their social accounts. They placed faith in the marketing power of TikTok and the collab houses that followed in its wake. They were ready to engage with the social media industrial complex, to feed it drama and ride each wave of attention to the bank. And most of all, they believed that being a living, walking brand was empowering that enmeshing their personal lives with their professional livelihoods 
would guarantee real ownership of their futures. But they would soon find out that things are not always as they appear. And everything that goes up must come down. On this season of This Blew Up. Oh, bro. Another fucking fake friend in L.A. They're just kids, and they're just rolling with it. They want to have fun. They want to be more famous. Like that kind of idea of, like, kids stacked up in a trench coat. Oh, this is the first time I'm talking about it, so it's, like, nerve-wracking. I think the best way to describe the house is it's a place where you would see a porno shot. He always wanted to film everything. It was like, oh, you know, someone's having a mental breakdown because their mental health is being ruined from this place. Let's film it. It was just one. One TikTok. I hated being in the same room as this man. Like, the worst feeling in the world, like, being around this person. In the span of maybe two months, it went to, like, 20-something dollars. Bruh. I would have so much money right now. We wouldn't even be here. I would be in Italy (laughs) having a vacation. And I just see these, like, four, like, huge men with, like, bandanas over their faces and... Basically just saying, like, you need to, like, and these are their words, but they're like, get your shit or we're going to throw your shit out ourselves. I was like, this part of my life, I want to just leave behind and never look back. Thanks for listening to This Blew Up. If you're enjoying the pod, please, please, please take a moment to tell a friend about it. I don't even have close to the amount of followers as the influencers on this podcast. So your word of mouth is the most valuable promotional tool we've got. This Blow Up was written and reported by me, Alyssa Bereznak. Its executive producers are Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Our story editors are Connor Nevins and Amanda Dobbins. The show was produced by me, Kaya McMullen, and Vikram Patel. Copy editing by Craig Gaines. Fact-checking by Juliana Ress. Special thanks to Erica Cervantes, who helped with research and early production. The theme song and some of the other music tracks you heard in this episode were composed by Devin Ronaldo. Other music you heard in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. Sound design by Kaya McMullen. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. Art direction by David Shoemaker. Illustration by Alicia Tenoyan. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.